Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Jason Horsley for New Books in Hidden History, and today I'll be talking to Michael Lesher, the author of Sexual Abuse, Shonda, and Concealment in Orthodox Jewish Communities from McFarland Publishing. Michael, and thanks for agreeing to this interview. Thank you. So let's just start with this uh, book and how you came about writing it. You could also explain the the meaning of the word Shonda. And uh, specifically, I was curious about um, your experience of publishing this book and actually leading up to it, because when I first looked at it and I realized that you were an Orthodox Jew yourself, I actually said to my wife, oh my God, he's probably considered a traitor in, you know, in his own community. And in fact, the first line of your introduction is, it isn't every day you're accused of being a traitor to your people. <laughs> so... If, you, if you'd like to talk a little bit about that, about the genesis of the book and your experiences within your, your community or within your religion, uh, writing it and publishing it, that would be a good place to start, I think. Well, if I, if I wander too much, you can call me back, because uh, I suppose I could say a lot about it, or I could dismiss it in a sentence or two. Let me try to give you something like a real answer. Uh, I, I, I am an Orthodox Jew. I was not born an Orthodox Jew. Uh, I became an uh, Orthodox in adult life, and I had already, uh, at the same time as I was becoming a religious person, was also uh, engaged in other things. I'd been a writer since I can, always wanted to be a writer since I can remember. Uh, I had done a little uh, journalism, freelance journalism, uh, and I was uh, a law student, uh, and I wasn't sure what I was going to do with a law degree, but I wanted to get it. And as I found myself um, developing all these strands in my life, I began to find that they were leading me in a similar direction. I was writing columns uh, here and there. I was getting some, new, some freelance news stories planted here and there, and people began to call me. And because they knew I was an Orthodox Jew, I would get calls from Orthodox Jews, and some of the calls seemed quite strange. Uh, one in particular sounded like something that... Uh, uh, my first reaction was it was a product of mental illness, that uh, that because a mother had reported a suspicion that her child was being sexually abused by the father, she had lost custody, the child had been placed in the accused abuser's custody, and um, she had been blocked from having visits, the child had almost died. It was, a, it was a bizarre story, and it didn't sound like it made any sense. But 
when I investigated it, as I felt obliged to do, uh, I discovered that it was not crazy. Uh, well, it was crazy, but not, it was not the, the story was not the product of a crazy mind. It really happened. Mm. And further investigation showed that it wasn't the only such case. That in fact there were a lot of of, of cover-ups of sex abuse that were happening, not just in the Orthodox community by any means, but this was actually not such an uncommon thing. And I ended up hearing quite a few of these stories. In this case, uh, I wrote a couple of news stories about it, um, a couple of pieces, one that one that appeared in the Village Voice and one that uh, really a column about it that I got into the Jewish Week. In other cases, I was approached as a lawyer. I had never worked as a lawyer, although I had a law degree. I didn't really want to go into courtroom work. But then I felt for some of these people, it made sense. I couldn't deny them what help I could give on the level of litigation, so I did some of that. Well, this go went on for years. And let's say my I was first introduced to this, let's say, about 1995, and this book as you know, was published in 2014. So it's close to 20 years of experience of one sort or another uh, as a writer, as a journalist, as a lawyer, and as a Jew and a member of a community uh, experiencing again and again uh, the severity and pervasiveness of this kind of problem. And eventually because I am a writer, I felt the only way that I can get this story told in a coherent way is to try to tell it in a book. Uh, the book itself took a few years to write, but I, I, just, I just didn't see how the story could be told in any way that was adequate in, in a shorter form. Mm -hmm. So that's how I came to write it. I mean, I, I, I didn't really, believe me, I didn't, I didn't set out when I first heard about these cases the first of them that I heard about. I didn't really think this was going to be uh, the path I would follow, certainly not to a book, and to a book that took years to put together. But it's, it's where I was led, and as you can see from reading it, it ended up occupying a great deal of not just of my time, but of what you might call my intellectual and spiritual space. Yeah. Until now I've reached the point, and I think the book expresses this somewhat, where... I don't just see this issue as a particular problem to be approached as a, as a as a as an abstract or isolated specialty. I tend to see a lot of things about my religion, my religious community, the legal system, a lot of the press, a lot of the things that I work with through this lens. Not that everything is about abused children or sex abuse or sex abuse cover-ups, but I have learned enough about these things through that prism to see a lot of things from that point of view. Um, and that, I think, also has colored the book, which I, um, which I know some people find rather a hard reading, a hard read, maybe perhaps because of that. Hmm. I don't know how you reacted to it, but I have heard this from some people. For one thing, it's, well, it's, just, yeah. just too, it's just too dark. It's certainly not too dark for me. I mean, I took my time reading it. I just yeah. finished it today, or at the time that we're talking to you. I found it a very powerful read and a, a quite a moving read and quite inspiring in many ways because it, it provided some new coherence to 
um, a problem and a mystery that has been plaguing me through actually my whole life, but certainly consciously in the last few years I've been writing about institutionalised abuse in the UK and my own family's sort of involvement with it and discovering many of the same things you've discovered, which I think is obviously very interesting and significant, that even though you've chosen to write about the Jewish community, Orthodox Jewish community, uh, it's it's very... um, Many of the aspects that you've uncovered are similar or identical to other cultures. That's absolutely true, yeah. I tried to touch on that a little bit in the book, and I've and I've talked about it when I've I, well, on one occasion I spoke about this general subject at um, an, uh, an event called the Battered Mothers Custody Conference, and there I generalized it rather by talking about what I called institutional inattention. Institutional what? Sorry. Institutional inattention. Oh, yeah. Explain how it is that certain systems, not just individuals, but systems have managed to look the other way when it comes to crimes that we, we, we all agree uh, are, are extremely serious and mm. in some cases have been very pervasive. And you, you, know, you know some of the cases in the UK. I, I don't focus on that. I, I mention one or two in the book. I, my focus is mostly on the United States. Mm. But you know what these cases are like, and once they're exposed, everybody shakes his head and you know, expresses dismay at how horrible it was. But nevertheless, it happens right under the noses of coaches, administrators, clergymen, and they're all, they're all able not to see it. Hmm. And, I, and I believe there are reasons for that, and we need to talk about that if we really want to understand the problem, and not simply talk about individual cases and how terrible they are. Hmm. And again, that was something I set out to do, and I, I'm glad the book had that. I'm glad that, that you were able to to read that in the book because for me personally, and again, I'm, I'm just speaking for me and can't tell other people how to react, but I didn't want the book to be altogether depressing. I, I was hoping that it would have some, in some respects, an uplift on the reader, not because I'm telling them delightful facts to know, because I think if we, if we do get to the bottom of this and understand it properly, we have a better idea of what direction to go in. Yeah, no, for, for me, the depressing and the frustrating thing is, is the denial and the refusal to see. Uh, there's nothing... It's a very inverse response for me to... to, That's to, right. to read or hear a, a, a willingness to discuss and explore the subject matter. Um, I'm wondering about this word Shonda, because it's going to me as we're talking, that uh, you don't actually use the word very much in the book, considering that it's part of the title. That's right. um, but I think it maybe because it's key to what we're talking about here, how it is that these crimes are so easily concealed that they kind of self-conceal. Right. Right. And that's why, I, 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 in a way, the book is, I, I, I hope the word is kind of a key to the book. And, and right away, because it wears two faces. Do you want to define it, first of all? The word simply translated means a shame or a scandal. But as as used in Yiddish, it it has a very strong cultural connotation. And and that is a shanda is something that you don't want to talk about. You don't Mm. want people to know it happened. Um, It's a shameful reality. I have only just recently, because I'm so ignorant of sociology and anthropology, just begun to hear about things called shame cultures and and guilt cultures and so on, but um, but this is a shame issue, um, and the idea is that that it's better just not to talk about it. On the other hand, the word can mean 
a scandal, as in it's a scandal that nothing was done about this. That's also a shanda. Isn't that a shanda? Hmm. And in fact, some people who've commented on, on my cases and even occasionally on my writing have said something like this. The real shanda is that we haven't. We haven't addressed it. But if you don't, the, the sort of... Um, the, the, the sort of inertia reaction, the sort of almost uh, ingrained reaction in the community, unless you work it through, push it through, talk about it, think about it, is, oh no, it's a Shanda, let's not talk. That, that, mm-hmm. That's a very deeply, um, almost an inveterate reaction that many people have, deeply held reaction that many people have when a subject comes along. And, and it's not just because it's a crime because it's a bad thing. I think it triggers that reaction in part because, well, for two reasons. Uh, here we can, we can start widening the subject a bit. One is that acknowledging it challenges some of the, the elements of our chosen image and self-image in the religious community. You know, it's not like cheating on your taxes. If people abuse children, then they, they are attacking the foundation of family life. They are abusing the vulnerable. They are abusing the people that we say among ourselves are our most pre- precious members. So it contradicts a lot of things that we want to believe about our community and about ourselves. And the other thing is that to pay serious attention to it means, as I, as I argue in the book, uh, that you really start having to reshuffle the hierarchical, hierarchical um, arrangements nobody likes to talk about, but are very much built into the religious society. Mm. Because if you have to listen seriously to a story of a child being abused, well, he's usually not being abused by, by another child. It happens. But most of the time we're talking about an adult or an older person who has some, some authority or power over him. We're talking about a teacher. We can be talking about a rabbi. But we're always talking about someone in a, in a, in a somewhere higher on the social ladder than the victim is. Mm. And if the child can be believed over him or her, um, then the social structure is shaken. And you can see in the way this has been reacted to by the rabbinate when it began to have to acknowledge that it was even a reality you see almost explicitly, you can always (laughs) scent it between the lines, this great fear of authority being undermined. Mm. And uh, and it's, it's, you know, the young against the old. And in each case, uh, each each dipole, I would mention, is is the weak against the... People are supposed to be lower against those who are supposed to be higher. A child against an adult a student against a teacher, a layperson against a rabbi, a non-Jew against a Jew, a non-religious Jew against a religious Jew, because many people who have been abused leave the religious community. And that fact gets mentioned a lot, as you'll see, as part of the logic of denial. How can you listen to that person? Hmm. He's not even part of our community. So all these things take on a hierarchical character, and if you 
if you like things to stay in place, if you don't want the tree shaken, you do not want this subject talked about. Now, I don't want to. I, I don't want to say. I, I think I've argued this carefully enough in the book, but just so I'm mis- not misunderstood as we speak. Hmm. I don't think that rabbis get together in a room and sit down and say to each other, you know, what can we do to hush these stories up so we stay in power? I think this is largely unconscious. But it is very much an institutional imperative. It is the way the system works. And if you really understand how the system works, you can understand much better why the same thing keeps happening in case after case, no matter how many times we shake our heads, no matter how many times we wring our hands and say, how could this happen again? And until we really look at the structure and its dynamic and why why it is what it is and whether we really want to keep it the way it is, I, I don't think we're really going to change it. That is, I hope I can say without boasting, that's one thing I wanted to do in this book that I think is, is, is different from anything I've seen written on the subject. <clears throat> there isn't another book on this specific subject anyway, but even in other books that have touched on sexual abuse in Orthodox communities, or for that matter, sexual abuse generally, there has been relatively little attention paid to the institutional problems that make this, make this phenomenon so easy. The denial, the concealment, the cover-up. You know, the book I wrote before this one, I co-wrote with Amy Newstein, called From Madness to Mutiny, My Mothers Are Running from the Family Courts and What Can Be Done About It. That was an analysis of abuse cases that arose in family courts and how often it happens that when a mother raises the suspicion that her child has been sexually abused by the other parent, she is going to be punished. And again, this is not because judges and CPS workers and we all get together in a room and say, what can we do to hush this up? But it is a dynamic that the system imposes because if you keep listening to the charges and taking them seriously, it's very destabilizing to the way the system works. Yeah, I think that's very much the key there, that, that, that destabilization and the psychological effect that it has on people. So you're talking about authority figures being undermined by evidence of these sorts of crimes. Well, if the authority figures are undermined and are seen as untrustworthy, then the institutions that they represent, and in a sense that have backed them, because uh, you can't really separate the figures from the institutions, uh, they, they also become undermined. So one of the ways I, I describe it is, is, is that nobody wants to see that the pillars of society are, are about to fall down. You know, aren't, they aren't stable um, because it's, it's just inherently terrifying. And I think you know what, what you're saying is very true. That there's, there's countless books about uh, sexual abuse, child sexual abuse, by you know t- people testifying to it um, or accounts of it. But the focus on the the environment in which it happens and the institutionalized nature of it isn't being addressed. Uh, and, and this has come up in Britain, as it seems you're aware. It was specifically around one character, Jimmy Savile, sure. and when the, the truth came out about him after he died, due to just people coming forward and testifying and just the overwhelming amount of evidence, uh, what was subsequently uh, unveiled, I mean, it just couldn't, be kept from coming out was just how much he was protected by the institutions and the BBC where he worked the uh, 
the police, you know, the, the, several reports and several investigations were were aborted from on high. Um, MI5, uh, royal family. I mean, it was just really rife throughout the whole of British culture, and. Uh, that hasn't really been, I mean, there haven't been any books about it, but it hasn't really been taken on by the British public. There's an awareness of the, the reality of this, but then there's a backing away from it and a choice to focus on the individual himself and this question that keeps recurring of how could it have happened and then these very, these very uh, unconvincing explanations, oh, that was the 70s and the times were different, just really just, just noise, really, as a way of... of People kind of self-talking as a way of not actually addressing the fundamental uh, yes. reality, which is, is the culture itself that gave rise to Jimmy Savile and, and all the rest of it. So, bringing it back to your book, anyway, I mean, one of my first questions is is about this: is about how you've chosen not to focus on the abuse itself, but on the concealment of it, which of course emphasizes that se child sexual abuse isn't just one of those things that happens; it's not an aberration; um, that it's endemic. To the in, in your in the case of your book Jewish Orthodoxy, but I would say to to society in general. Um, yes, I, I would too. I, I don't know a society where I where there isn't where it isn't happening. Maybe in some societies more than others. Uh, I tried to even draw some parallels in the book, for example, between the Orthodox community and an extreme case we know of, uh, the, uh, the the Church of Latter Day Saints and. Um, in right. American Southwest, That's, I chose it deliberately because it's an extreme case. But when you begin to look at it and ask yourself, "Is this really unique?" then you find yourself having to say, "Well, not entirely." Mm -hmm. um, there, there are really just too many parallels. And I think you're right. I, I think, look, I mean, this, if the Savile case shows anything, it shows that, that you don't. This doesn't have to be in a religious community. It doesn't right. have to be in a. It certainly doesn't have to be in a culturally backward community. Doesn't have to be in a poor community. Doesn't have to. I mean, when I, I, I mention all these things because I've run in over the years, even before I was associated in any way with this issue, some of the, the, the ideas that would that would pass my way, particularly perhaps because I was born in the deep south, was oh, you you, you know these things happen among the hillbillies. These are right. you know these are the, and this is what you're going to see in the slums and the ghettos and so on. Uh, and not that you don't, but. The truth is, you find it all over the place. And, and actually, as I mentioned in the mm. book, the, one of the key facts behind it is really power. Yeah. So a great deal centers around people who are in positions of power and know how to use it, yeah. uh, both, both because they can use that power to conceal their activities and because they, for them it's an extension power that they crave uh, to use it over vulnerable people. And again... Part of what I have come to see in the world around me, and perhaps I overdo it, and I don't think so, but others might, is just how much that how much that dynamic is found around the world, and how poisonous it is. Mm. When when you when, and this is why one of the reasons I try to spend so much time in the book talking about even the perspective from which we decide to look at abuse, and how how significant it is. Once you make the decision to look at abuse or alleged abuse from the perspective of the abuser or the victim, mm. and for example, in one of the stories I tell in the book, we have a, a, a man who is now a man, but was you know, systematically abused as a boy by a rabbi. I think it was his, was his yeah, it was his father. I, I think it was his father who was also a rabbi, and he goes back 
to challenge the other rabbis who had covered up for him. And the comment of the rabbi, and this is not my this is the story he told in print. So I just quoted it. He said the, the the rabbi told him, "You're right. We did, but but you know, don't don't make anything out of it now. Your father is old now. He can't. He can no longer send. So what's the point? Right. Once so, I mean, not that the, I don't know what his. Well, I mean, I do know, but I mean, I, I he doesn't say at this point what his goal was specifically. But but it wasn't so much to go and punish the old man. Mm. It was to address everything that had been done to him and what that how that had shaped or warped his life. And you cannot see any of that if, like this old rabbi, who I take it in his own mind was well-meaning, but see it only from the perspective of the perpetrator. He's an old man. Mm. What do you want? But of course, from the victim's perspective, it's not—it's not over. It's not settled, and no one ever said, "I'm sorry." And yeah. so you, you know, you go from one step to another. Look, we said <laughs> recently. If anybody thought this was about the seventies, I mean, look at the reaction that, that came up, or or about the UK for that matter. I don't want to dump on the poor UK when 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 the, when the allegations were renewed against Woody Allen recently. Uh, yeah. by his daughter, you saw, I mean, it wasn't just one or two people. It was a very organized, systematic reaction. And what I found interesting about it, I won't dwell on it, but just to quickly summarize it, was that almost none of it was about the girl. Almost none of it, I mean, it's not a girl anymore, she's now a young woman, but none of it was about her. Mm. And this is the point that I see over and over again. It was all about somebody else. It, it was the ex-wife. It was the, you know, it was that nut Mia Farrow. It was that you know. It was it was her friend, people, somebody who brainwashed. But nobody addressed addressed it from her point of view. Why would she lie about this? Why would she make up this story? And in fact, the uh, when 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 I think the the author of the most perhaps the most uh, <clears throat> blistering attack um, uh, was asked by uh, I think it was asked by Nick Kristoff uh, because he had, he didn't when he wrote his piece she had not yet published hers. So he asked him, in fairness, now that you've read what she had to say personally. Uh, Sorry, who who what who was the she in this? Okay, so so, so Woody Allen's daughter published a column through uh, with Nick Kristoff. Basically, he published her piece of writing in his column, Space in the Earth, which is again that's sort of part of the story. She couldn't get yeah. her story into the press any other way. Right, kind of a remarkable fact when you think about it, or yeah. something about it. But but, he, but Nicholas Kristoff was sympathetic, and he gave her his space to tell her story. Just before this had come out, because the allegations had been renewed through other sources, I mean, she had been responsible indirectly, but there were other people writing about it, uh, several columns appeared. I can't remember the name of the author, but it was a very closely argued piece by someone who said he was a friend of Woody Allen's, he's a liberal, he's a good guy. As the author was saying about himself, you know, I'm not the kind of person who, uh, you know, frowned, but this story is ridiculous. And the whole article was about how awful Mia Farrow was. And so he had, when he wrote that, he had not read her column. So Nicholas Kristoff asked him, now that you've seen what she had to say, is there anything you would want to change in what you wrote? And his answer, which just took my breath away, was, no, I, there's nothing to change. I hope she has a nice life. And, again, what, what just left me flabbergasted about that was that she was apparently irrelevant to his, to his whole understanding of the story, even though it's all about her. Right. I mean, you could say she's a liar. 
you could say... But even then it's about her as the thing that people fail to address. Even if somebody can be manipulated into telling hideous lies, that's still a question that they've been psychologically traumatized or interfered with in some way. So even there, yeah, there's no could, excuse could, for... Right, you could believe that. Perhaps that happened. But you, I, I don't see how you can just say her, her, what she says doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. And what that says to me is that he looked at this whole thing, the whole question for him was, how does this look to, for Woody Allen? Is this yeah. sensible for Woody Allen's point of view? Would Woody yeah. Allen have done this? Is this fair to Woody Allen? Well, okay, these are fair questions, but they don't encompass the whole of what is being alleged here, which really should center on the victim. You don't have to believe the story, but you better begin by looking at it from that perspective. Yeah. Yeah, well, this is very key, and you touched on this throughout the book, which is question of identification, and how, one way or another, consciously or not, or a mixture of the two, most people choose to identify with power, and that means identifying with, in these cases, with the abuser or the accused abuser. Yes. In contrast to identifying with the alleged victim, which, of course, is the very inverse of that. We don't, and we don't usually put it that way, but that's, in fact, what we're doing. And there are motives for that, I think, psychological motives, as well as the very obvious practical ones. But I think in, in various ways, people are trying to keep their sense of stability. They're trying to keep their sense of safety. Yeah. And they would rather, you know, when you, when, you, when you look at the world from the standpoint of fear, you'd rather be on the side of the strong. Yeah. And that makes a big you, difference. Yeah. As you point out in the book, the result of this is, is that I mean, what ends up happening is that the, the victims or, and or alleged victims end up being re-victimized. They end up um, being turned into outsiders and enemies of the community, such as whatever it is. Yeah. We had here in Passaic so a few years ago an event which um, uh, I'm glad happened, uh, in which some victims of sexual abuse spoke. And uh, I know people who were there were very moved. But I also feel that as valuable a first step as that might be in educating people about what, what is out there and what it means to those who are victims, I think in a way it's also very inadequate because what, what people come away saying is, you know, I, I want to kill that I want to kill the, that guy who did it. I want to. Yeah. Want to and again, that's just talking about the perpetrator. That's not getting at the problem. Mm. And what happens is that that when people are faced with with a, with a real story, an allegation where they don't know the facts, they're not being presented with uh, post hoc, but have to assess it, then the person they see accused doesn't look to them like the monster they were ready to hang up on a rail when they heard the victim's story and then the whole thing is wasted because the, I don't care what you think about the real person that to me is not is not is not good in fact look if you when you, when you I, I didn't do this in my book but in the previous book I contributed to it's called Tempest in the Temple hmm. there is a, a contribution from a therapist who works with offenders and if you work with actual offenders, uh, what you see are human beings. Mm. Um, true, you're, the ones he's working with are, are, are generally the ones who are most amenable to, to therapy, so he's getting the better cases. Um, but 
they are people. Um, and if you look for a monster, you're not going to find the problem. Right. The problem is monsters. Yeah. Yeah. But the people who commit the crimes uh, are generally not. And the people who cover them up never are. These are people who have families who are nice to their children, who, you know, uh, functioning members of society, think well of themselves, have some reason to think well of themselves, but they're doing something that is, that is deeply destructive and evil. Mm. And what you have to get at is why they don't see that. So I've tried to aim in that direction. And I guess to answer your other the question you started with is, you know, it's true. Some people don't like it. Uh, I've, um, uh, I, I didn't. I don't want to over dramatize that part of it. I did think it, it was a good place to start in the introduction, um, mm-hmm. just just to sort of illustrate where we're coming from. Not because, not because he called me a bad name, but because of the reason. And and he was pretty clear about it. And he's never denied this. I didn't use his name, but you know, I, I, I've quoted it not just in the book. Um, what he accused me of was telling the truth. Yeah. He never said, you're lying, you're making this up, this isn't true. He, he said, you can't, you can't tell people this. This is a very bad thing to say. And so I did want to begin there. But as, yeah, as to the reaction, it's true. A lot of people don't really want the story told. On the other hand, a lot of people do. And one of the things I'm, I'm starting to experience in, in the religious community and getting it largely from the reactions to my own work, and it's mixed, but I find that we have, very lot, we have a lot of people in, 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 in Orthodox Jewish communities who up to now and for most of, most of their lives have not wanted to speak out. They're not people in the positions of power. They're not rabbis. Even today, when they speak, they want to speak anonymously. But they are starting to speak. And what they want and what they see as the nature of their community and what they want out of their religion are all very different from what the rabbinate sees. Hmm. There, there's really quite a split. Um, and I... Um, you know, I have my dark days, but when, when, I, when, I, when I see hope, when I, when I think of light, it's, it's generally from hearing them talk. I mean, the, the stories are often painful, they're wrenching. Hmm. But hearing people say, even say those, let's say either the, both those who have been abused and those who haven't, but who will say, you know, I'm, I'm seeing now that that I'm, I'm, I, have a, I have a right to a voice. I have a right to an opinion. Um, this, to me, is a very hopeful step. Uh, I don't want to suggest that things are so terrible that you know, we're living in a kind of totalitarian system where no one has a voice, but, but there is a big difference um, in, in, in my religious community, especially in the, what people call the ultra-Orthodox part of that community between the top and the bottom as to what you how much of a public profile you feel you can have hmm. the people who are 
farther down the ladder now, I think are starting to to recognize that the religion is theirs too. That the, the rabbinate doesn't own God. It doesn't own right and wrong. They're part of the system too. And it, it's, it's happening slowly, and it's happening a little bit at a time, but I think it's happening. I think one reason for the somewhat hysterical reaction that parts of the rabbinate have expressed against the Internet I mentioned this in the book too, is precisely that they recognize that this is a kind of uh, a kind of um, anonymous communication that they can't stop. And what it means is that you can't atomize the community. It means that you can't make each individual think I'm the only one. Right. I have no one to speak to. All I, all I, it, it's just it's between me and maybe I'm crazy and what the rabbis say. Now they can go on the internet and they can, they can go on a blog and they can put up a little comment or two and they will get answers from people saying, yes, exactly, that's, you're right, that was my experience too. And suddenly they realize they're not alone. That there are lots of people experiencing life the same way they are and they may not be happy with the way it's going, but they can see that they are parts of a community, not just isolated individuals. And I think that's a dynamic that won't stop. As long, yeah, as long as the internet is... Well, and, and it started with abuse. It, it, it started because people, again, I, I, I was amazed, you know, I, I, one of the things that, that brought me into this story was working on the Mondrowitz case, which I, uh, which I devoted many years of my life, and, and the book reflects it to some extent, but that was one of the things I was amazed about when I, when I began to meet Mondrowitz victims. They didn't know when they were abused in the 1980s, the late 70s, most of them in the 80s. Uh, they didn't know that there were other victims. Hmm. And, you know, when, as years went by and they grew to maturity, they didn't know. They didn't, they, they, this was just a private secret they carried around with them. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that that intersects with something that happens in the psyche of uh, victims of sexual interference that they somehow think that they brought it on themselves and that it's proof of their own wrongness in some way. Yes, many of them actually did think that, and even if they didn't, the, the fact that you carry a reality, and I hope I don't talk, sound too, um, too uh, uh, abstract, poetic, but... You, know, you carry a reality around with you that you can't share with anyone else. Mm -hmm. it, 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 it doesn't quite settle to earth. You, you can't ever really know if it's, if it's true. And only when you can really share it. I mean, I, I, I quote um, uh, Judy Brown as saying, I, I, now I'm going to probably misquote it because I don't have a text in front of me, but if I remember right, she said, you, you, you can't, how can I talk about something if there's no name for it? Right. Uh, there has to be a word there has to be a, a, some vehicle of shared reality between you and someone else before you can really believe in something it's one of the features of language that's very strange but we, 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 do, we, do, we do live with it yeah. and if you can't talk about something not just because <clears throat> there's no one to talk about you're not even sure what to call it if you had someone to talk to it about it's not real to you so you carry around the memory you carry around its effects you carry around its its, its um, uh, uh, um, 
derangement of your of your own sense of of love and, uh, and and other things that get affected by it. But did it really? You know, were you the victim of a crime? Well, you you can't you can't see it that way because you can't talk about it. And only very recently did some of these victims, many of Mondrewood, some of other people, begin to find each other on the internet and that's when it became real to them they became different people hmm. because of that I don't think it's going too far to say that or they became the people they really were um, because now they were they were finally able to share the reality they experienced and even if they couldn't get those people into criminal court sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't but even when they didn't, it changed them. Talking about experiences that one has had that entails some sort of betrayal trauma, I don't know if you know that term, but it very much relates to... It doesn't have to be parents, the one is bet betrayed by. Right. It can also be authority for religious figures, particularly, I would think, but any kind of authority figure. That the kind of, And the younger this happens, the greater the trauma. The, the kind of confusion that that creates does include, or I think it's maybe even primarily at the deepest level, a confusion about what's real and what's not real. Yeah. Uh, and so that... And it's very hard to to think about it at all but then if you can't speak about it then it's not safe to speak about it then it becomes uh, even more difficult to think about it because of the pressure it creates and, and so the whole thing of bringing something out from an inner sense of an event or a reality to be able to bring it out through speaking, through writing, whatever and see it uh, is, is essential I think it doesn't necessarily have to have somebody listening but, but really that that is... I think it's very hard without that, even if it's yeah. just one person right, who will validate the reality, not by necessarily saying, yes, yeah. it's true, or they might not be able to, but just by hearing it. And one can hear oneself expressing it to another, and one can gauge oneself how real it is just through that process. So that that is very fundamental. And you know, my own experience is, is not so much with kind of in, confronting individuals or even perpetrators, because I haven't reach that stage, maybe I never will, but just in terms of speaking to other people and within my own family uh, and hearing other people's experiences in their family and how this whole, it's like the mantra of sleep, let sleeping dogs lie, how, how the response that you're most likely to get is, is, is that somehow it's, because you're threatening, because talking about these right. things is threatening to people, you yourself become the threat that has to be silenced. Exactly. I think I mentioned in the book that when uh, I did get it, um, uh, ABC Nightline interested in the Mondrowitz case, and they did do a piece on it, um, uh, I, 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 this unfortunately didn't make it into the piece, but the reporter called me up from Brooklyn where they were shooting, and was, she was just livid. And she said, these people are coming up to us saying, why are you going after this man? You know, why can't you leave him alone? Uh, and that is exactly what you say. There, there, there is a sense, and, and it's not altogether, it's not altogether wrong, if you, if you think about it from their point of view, a sense in which you are threatening. Mm. Um, you're not just threatening the old man. <laughs> they, they, could, they could tolerate threatening the, the, the man if, if, if he were on the list of people that they like to threaten. But mm. you, what you're really threatening is them. 
you're threatening them, you're threatening their community, you're threatening their self-image, you're threatening its leadership. Yeah. This got brought to, he hasn't yet, but if this guy got brought to justice, one of the things that would have to come out, and I suspect it would because he, 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 would, he would do it, uh, would be just how many people, highly respected people in the community, for how long, uh, you know, just turn their backs. At, at, just like the Savile story. That's exactly what you would find. And they don't want it. The DA doesn't want it either. And that—that mm. that was again. I, I know all the. You know, if you don't—if you don't have a very well-established factual record, you don't want to go out saying things like this because it starts to sound like you're some kind of conspiracy nut. But fortunately, mm-hmm. I do have the facts, and so in this case, I can say it. And yeah, yeah, and the facts really do speak for themselves. Yeah. Um, if you just present them in the right order, it's just overwhelming. So, uh, I mean, continuing on this point, I wanted to kind of zero on some specifics um, from the book. You write, for example, that child sex abuse accusations entail an implicit political threat to the reigning order in a patriarchal society, because that's a very much a thesis statement, but you, you back it up with all the evidence you present and one of the things that really stood out for me among your evidence and this is specific to to the Jewish orthodoxy and I think one of the things I found helpful about your exploration the focus on the Jewish orthodoxy is that it it kind of reveals the machinery of institutionalized abuse in a way that it's not so obvious looking at other examples, I mean, maybe in other cults, I mean, there's certainly parallels with Scientology and some of the stuff that you talk about, but I don't think I've read about any description of uh, institutionalized abuse within the community that really reveals the mechanics of it as well as as your book does. So specifically, uh, thinking of the law of Masir, I mean, this is just one example, but it's just a very strong one. I'm quoting you, quoting... Uh, I think somebody, Professor Resnikov, I think it is. But anyway, here's the quote. The law of Messira, or informing, is extraordinary within Jewish law. If someone adamantly announces that he's going to violate the rule and inform on another Jew to Gentiles, including Gentile governmental authorities, then every Jew has the obligation to use force, even deadly force, if necessary, to prevent the informant from fulfilling his purpose. Well, so that's, that's very extreme, and, you know, however infrequently that's actually carried out just the implications of it that you refer to time and time again which is that the allegations of child sex abuse or, or, or simply reporting that it's happened or talking about it's happened is seen as is a, a far greater threat and something that has to be controlled much more vigilantly than the actual committing of sexual abuse yes and and the and what's really interesting about that is why that should be such a priority. Mm. After all, it, it is true that this notion appears in Talmudic law, but it's also true that contrary laws appear in Talmudic law. The, the prohibition of standing by, for example, there is a specifically a, a prohibition in Jewish law against standing by while someone else is harmed. Um, and it's not a new thing to try to reconcile these principles and decide when it's proper to report to authorities, when it isn't. Jews have had experiences of living, <coughs> excuse me, of, of living under very uh, unreliable and hostile authorities, and that's partly where that, uh, where that reluctance comes from. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to turn to modern sources to find plenty of, ba- of, uh, of, of support 
for reporting a suspected criminal to the police under today's circumstances in the countries mm -hmm. in which we actually live. This is not a big problem, and I talked about this in the book. Mark Dratch, who's a rabbi, uh, covered this ground. I, I, I didn't want to do the same thing again, partly because it's been done and partly because he's the rabbi. I'm not, but, but it's there. It, it's all in... You mean rep reporting crimes that don't entail sexual abuse of children, you mean? E either one. I mean, you, the fact that you can, you can, in fact, report them. Yeah. And so what I always say when this issue comes up, and it does every time I talk about it or write about it, yeah. is if you decide to pull on the strand that's against reporting as opposed to the strand that's for it, that is a conscious choice. And, it, and a choice is something for which we bear responsibility. So it's not enough to say, well, there is this, this concept, this element in Jewish law. You've got to tell me why you've chosen to, re to, to rest on that when so many authorities tell you you don't have to rest on that. On the contrary, you should rest on the obligation to protect another. Uh, which requires you to report. So the, the question can't ultimately be resolved by saying, well, that's the law. Ultimately, you have to say, we've chosen to emphasize this over that. And if you've chosen it, then you've got to justify why you've chosen it. Um, and, and here's where the system starts to break down, because once you, once you get people to, to address that question, um, uh, well... Then, then you're in a very different level of discussion. Mm, just just right. recently, I don't know if you saw, I, I had a, a column come out in Forward uh, last week, I think it was just a week ago, about the the, um, the Brooklyn Shomrim. I talk about this in, in the book as well. The, the eighth chapter of the book mm -hmm. talks about these Jewish, these Orthodox patrols. And in this case, uh, uh, this is a new case in which one of the patrol members, a few of the patrol members were um, accused of, of savagely beating a young uh, gay black man and uh, charges have been dropped against two of them, three of them are now expected to get a very lenient plea deal uh, in which they will not have to serve any prison time. So I wrote a column about that and again one of the, one of the people who responded online said, well you know, it, it does. It's just too bad. You you can't you can't report these people. You can't you can't snitch. That was his that was his word. You can't snitch on Jews uh, to the police. Um, well, that's just not true. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not saying that's not there in Jewish law, and I'm not defending its being there either. There are certain historical reasons why it's there. I mean, it didn't begin. By the way, I should probably say it didn't begin as a prohibition against reporting criminals. It, be, it begins as a prohibition against extortion. And the, ca the, 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 the cases of extortion that are given in the Talmud are, you, you tell the, the Persian, the Babylonian official, right, that so-and-so has, you know, got money hidden in his, you know, in his backyard or whatever, and they're going to beat him up until he gives it to him. Right, so, and then you get your cut of that, right? Right, so, right. So the, the real prohibition was meant to be against the use of extortion to, to, you know, to get something that you want. You, and and, and the, the, the reason it has to be discussed is that you physically don't do anything to the guy. You know, so th that, that was really the issue. But because the classic cases involved, um, uh, well, for example, tax farming, an institution we don't have, I don't know if it exists anywhere in the world today, but we certainly don't have it here now. 
but it was very typical, for example, in the Roman Empire, uh, where you, you basically just turn people loose on a community to raise taxes any way they want, and then the government gets a cut. So it, it's basically a sort of legalized extortion. And not surprisingly, you know, minority communities were, <laughs> were not keen on paying. So that became a kind of, you know, one of, one of the examples of extortionate behavior. But, okay, granted, we, 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 you know, we have a history we have. We got the principle we got. And I'm not, I'm not uh, holding a brief for it as it is. But, there, but the point is you can, still, you can still trump it. You can still interpret it as so many authorities have over the years in a way that doesn't practically prevent you from reporting a suspected criminal police. And yet you have people coming up and just saying, you can't do it. So what they're telling you is not they've studied the law. On the contrary, they're telling you they don't know. Because if they'd studied it, they'd realize there are many different opinions, at least. Hmm. What they're telling you is they are, all, they're, they are not going to get their heads out of that one corner. This is what they've chosen to look at, and they, nothing will induce them to look at anything else. That's not a legal decision. You know, it's a psychological decision or a cultural decision or a socio sociological decision, whatever you like to call it, but it's not, it's not a legal one, and it shouldn't be called a religious one. Hmm. And at the very least, if you're going to make that kind of decision, you better give a good reason. You know, we think it's better to protect our criminals uh, you know, than to help the police. You, you tell me. Say, say it out loud. You have to do that or you're not being honest. And it's remarkable, though, you see, the, the, the uphill battle is not saying what I just said. Well, the uphill battle is getting people to realize that that's the issue. Which is the issue? Sorry. In other words, if that's the question one should be asking. Why did you choose that over that? Right. Why do you think it's better to protect criminals than, than to have a society in which <coughs> we have... Uh, you know, open open avenues. To, and by the way, I don't. I don't. I mean, people will sometimes confront me with the, with the question. You think the police are perfect? Well, hey, you know, heaven heaven forbid. <laughs> Anybody that knows anything about my legal work will know. I I, I, don't, I don't think the police are a perfect institution. There there, there, has, there hasn't ever been a perfect law enforcement system. But you don't make it better. You know, by by a conspiracy of silence. Nobody ever did. I know, again, I, 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 I'm aware it wasn't just Jews. I mean, I know the Irish used to do this under occupation, that you, did, you didn't cooperate with the, with the English. I, and I get that. I understand why you don't. But, mm. you, you, but no one ever made a justice system work better by working that way. And we're not living under occupation, for heaven's sake. Mm. Well, one of the ironies you point out, and the irony is probably a rather mild word for it, because I'm sure it upset people, but was how Jewish communities and Jewish groups have developed or adopted the same tactics of their persecutors as a defense against persecution and, and this does seem to be again it's not exclusive to, to Jews or Jewish communities or anything of that kind but the way in, and of course even at a microcosmic level that um, somebody who is abused may go on to abuse other children I think it, it, it doesn't happen that frequently but on the other hand I think a large percentage of people who do abuse children do have that in their own past so so there's definitely a correlation there just at an individual level but in terms of groups um, it does seem as though if you have a, a group that is a minority for a period and that has to develop tactics to preserve itself then it, it will either create laws or abuse laws that already exist in a way that will um, maintain its power and then over time that 
that kind of overly huddled and overly defend, defended psychological position leads to the abuse of power. Yes, I, I do. I do think so. And I also think that this is perhaps one of the most controversial parts of, of, of my book, at least as far as the Orthodox community is concerned, that we as a community haven't fully come to terms with our own approach to power, to uh, oppression, to cruelty. You know, one of the things that happens, not just to Jews, this has nothing to do with religion, I don't think. I, I think it has to do with, with, with being a, 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 a minority under discrimination, and many other minorities will identify with this. Mm. One of the things that happens over time is that Jewish communities learned how to keep afloat by maintaining good relations with those in the centers of power. This is a long diaspora story and a very commonly repeating one. And um, part of what goes on with that is a, is, a, is a terrific fear of what happens if those in power are, lose, lose their power, because then you pay a price um, if you've worked with them. Uh, and right. Again, this is not a Jewish-only story. Where I'm, you see, you see this happening with the, with the Coptic, uh, Coptic community in Egypt, uh, when, when, uh, and, and why they're so close to the government. We see it in, with the religious minorities now in Syria. This is again, this is why the, why both the Jewish community, when there was still a significant Syrian Jewish community, and the Christian community were very pro-government. Um, still, are. I mean, they, they just, they, this is their protection. And once you get in that posture, you have to stay there. Because the more you're associated with the government, the bigger your risk if that government gets overthrown. So they can't afford to take that chance. They've, if they stay in the country, they've got to keep the government in power. Right. One of the consequences of that is that you adopt some of the, you either adopt or participate in and perhaps even internalize some of the, some of the power system, of, of, of the, even the system that oppresses you. Yeah. And... And then you carry that around with you, even when you leave. And that's something I think we really need to examine more carefully, because we do know what it means to be on the receiving end of punishment, of abuse, of, I shouldn't say punishment, of, of oppression, of hmm. abuse, uh, of persecution. But that doesn't mean we don't know what it is to dish it out. And that's a reality that I think we're not entirely facing up to. Uh, unfortunately, I see it, that somewhat unfolding in the uh, Jewish attitude toward what has happened in, uh, uh, in Israel and um, uh, the occupied Palestinian territory. Another thing that's been controversial about my book, um, I didn't have a lot in there about it, but I do think that this is something that can't be altogether ignored. Um, and... You know, again, it, it, it's, it's, you know, if, if you're committed to the idea of, of justice in all its forms, you're not going to make exceptions. But if you're committed to a sort of hierarchical principle where you know, some people have to be favored because they, they are in power and they give protection and other people are less important... Yeah. then somebody on the bottom of that scale is going to end up being abused. And quite honestly, I do not care morally if the people getting the kicks at the bottom are Jewish or not Jewish. 
um, that that is something that, that that we should not tolerate in any circumstances. And if you tolerate it in some circumstances, basically you adopt you have to adopt the system as a whole. You, you know you can't say well you know I don't believe in abuse, but I believe in abusing some people. Right. Like I don't know if you you probably wouldn't remember him, but I, I was I was born in Georgia and was living in Georgia when uh, J.B. Stoner was a candidate for governor. And J.B. Stoner eventually went to prison for his role in a bombing of a black church. But Mr. Stoner had enough support back then in Georgia to run for governor and was on the ballot, and he gave a campaign speech, which I heard, not in person, I saw it on television. But it began with the sentence, I am running on the platform of love, love of the white race. And bless his heart, that old segregationist, Lester Maddox, our former governor, you know, poorly educated guy who got himself into politics by boasting that he would keep people out, black people out of his restaurant with an axe handle if they tried to come in. He walked out on J.B. Stoner when he said that. And the reason was that as, as bad as Lester was, he, he recognized this basic fact that you can't say you love people if you only love your group hmm. that's not love that's hate you can call it love all you want but if you leave people out of it that's a policy of hate and even Lester got that we got to get it too so we can't have a policy that says we love Jews we love Jewish children we love Americans, we love white people. We love everybody who agrees with us. It's just those other people we don't. Eh, sorry. Once, once, once you start doing that, then you've adopted a system of abuse. Right, and the ones who get abused aren't actually the other outside. They're the one, one's own children. Absolutely, absolutely. Because once you have a system of abuse, it's just a question of shifting the variables. There's always, it's always the powerless. Right? Yeah, exactly. There's sorry. always an excuse. There's always a rationalization for this. This one was okay. This this, this one you can you know I needed it. Again, you look at it from the perpetrator's perspective. Look, I needed it. Uh, you know uh, he, he he tempted me. It sounds crazy, but even I, I don't. I just didn't get into the book because it happened after. But I, I've talked about it. There was a case in the. He got written up in the Times. It was it was in Afghanistan. A mullah was. Uh, successfully prosecuted for raping a 10-year-old girl in his mosque. And uh, what does he say in his defense? She was promiscuous. She tempted him. Hmm. Years old, right? Well, we, readers of the time shake their heads. How can anyone say that? Yeah, well, in New York, there's a, there's a rabbi now serving time in federal prison named Israel Weingarten. And that story wasn't written up in the New York Times. But he raped his daughter over a period of years, and when he was, when he went to, when he was first accused of it, he went to a Jewish court. Um, there were testimonials submitted on his behalf. This is this is in the book. Uh, testimonials submitted that said, among other things, that the girl who was raped from the time she was ten years old was promiscuous. You'd think no one could make this up. But in fact, everybody makes it up because once you ha once you've adopted this mindset, you just it's like it's just like switching the variables in the equation. Everything falls into place. The victim had to be at fault. Mm. 
you know, I mean, if you kill if you killed him, it was because he threatened you. <laughs> you know, if you raped her, it's because she tempted you. She was promiscuous. Doesn't matter if she's ten. You look at it from the, pers- the, the perpetrator's point of view. He would look. He was. A t- he found her attractive. He was tempted. Her fault. Anyway, I'm not saying this to make a you know launch a diatribe against anybody, but this happened. It happened to a rabbi and. In the case of a rabbi in, in Rockland County, who's now in federal prison, not just to this mullah in Afghanistan. You see, we, we were allowed to read about that, right. I think, because that's far away in an alien culture, and it sounds very, you know, very remote, but it's not so remote. It's happening right here. These are patterns that we need to address, and it's not, you know, look, I, I, I assume, I take it, that the, uh, you know, the clergyman who raped the 10-year-old girl and the guy who raped his own dog, these, these are exceptional figures, thank God. This doesn't happen every day. But the people who covered up for them, who protected them, who, in both cases, went into court to say, you know, this is a good guy. These people are not crazy. They're not exceptional. They're not sick. But there's something sick driving them. And that's what we need to address as a society, as a culture, as a religion. This is Jason Horsley for the New Books Network. There's a second part to my conversation with Michael Lesher, which you can find by following the link in the show notes at New Books Network. Thanks for listening, and I encourage everyone who found something of interest in this interview to check out Michael's book, Sexual Abuse, Shonda, and Concealment in Jewish Orthodox Communities, from McFarland Press.